Hello, this is Sam Amon, your non-binary host, and this is the 42nd episode of The Art of Asymmetrical Warfare. Today we'll be discussing Rinzai's campaign against the Basmachi. making history, and we got a lot to discuss today. Please, if you haven't already gotten vaccinated or you haven't gotten your booster, go get vaccinated and go get your booster. Numbers are rising. The newest version of COVID, Omicron, is more contagious than the previous versions, um, and you're just going to be checked a lot more people if you're vaccinated. Also, if you are vaccinated, make sure everyone in your family is vaccinated, make sure all your friends are vaccinated, and if that's true, then please continue wearing a mask and being conscious about having gatherings. The pandemic is not over, and we still need to protect each other. Second, a lot of primaries have either just wrapped up or they are starting, so if you're in Chicago, we have a primary to vote in. Early voting already started on June 2nd and will continue until Election Day, which is June 28th. There's still time to request a mail-in ballot. Uh, We'll provide a link to the election website where you can request a ballot, look up your districts and wards, and figure out where the closest uh, polling station is. If you're ready to vote but have questions about certain candidates, there's a couple of guides out there that can help you. Indivisible Isle 9, uh, which is a group I'm part of, recommends the Girl I Guess Guide, um, which is a great breakdown of all the candidates, um, judicial and otherwise. And then uh, the Chicago Readers and Justice Watches judicial guide um is great it breaks down all the um judges running for election and goes into great detail about any past scandals they've had um any racist behavior they've displayed um and things like that the justices races are probably the most important but no one ever really votes in them because there's just so many and people don't really know what's going on so the injustice watch is um is here to help and it's a great great resource the third thing is gun violence Um, Now is the time to get serious gun reform passed. We have the support of a majority of people who live in the United States. We just need to convince the spineless elected representatives to finally make a change. Join a March for Our Lives chapter and take part in the fight to end gun violence and save lives. They just had a huge march in D.C. on the 11th, and they're planning a series of marches throughout the summer. Once you join a chapter, you can also donate to the families affected by the Uvalde shooting and the Buffalo Top Supermarket shooting. Um, We'll provide links. The GoFundMe page has a page that this collects all of the family fundraisers, so we'll provide links there. You can also join the End Gun Violence Lunch and Lobby, which is held every Monday from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Central Time. Basically join others during lunch to call members of Congress and press them to pass gun reform now. And I'll provide a link to where you can register for that event. Trans rights and abortion rights. Um, It's June, which also means it's Pride Month. I wish it was a more joyful one, but the war against transgender and non-binary people is ongoing. Just yesterday, 31 fascists planning to attack the Pride celebration were arrested in Idaho. Republicans plan to prosecute anyone who takes their child to a drag show in Florida. Ohio just joined one of the latest states to require adults to inspect children's genitals before they can play in sports. And a uh, trans child in Texas tried to kill himself because he didn't want his family to be investigated for child abuse. He was taken to a hospital to be treated, and when the hospital found out he was on hormones, they reported the family anyway. And then on top of all that, bastards are trying to take away our reproductive rights. We need people 
especially cisgender people, to stand up and fight for us now. Um, it's now or never, because the rhetoric's getting scary and the actions are getting scary. One way to do that is to join the website Transformation Project and look up any and all anti-trans bills in your state. Once you've written down the list, you need to call your representatives and demand that they stand with the trans and non-binary community and vote these bills down. After you've called them, you need to organize mass protests, you need to send them letters, you need to send them emails, you need to visit their offices. They cannot rest until these bills are defeated. Remind them that the midterms are coming up and this is a make or break issue for you. After you've done that, you need to donate to your local trans organizations. We have a page on our website dedicated to a few of these organizations, but it is no way exhaustive. So check out our list and then uh, do the doodle and find others in your area. Some of our favorite organizations to support are Brave Space Alliance, the Okra Project, Homeless Black Trans Women's Fund, the Trans Family Network, and Black Trans Futures. Once you've done that, you need to get back on your phone and tell your federal representatives to pass a federal law legalizing abortion. I think the one that's currently being uh, passed around is the Women's Health Protection Act. They tried to vote on this earlier this year, and it failed because they didn't have the votes because of the Republicans, and they did not make it an exception to the filibuster. So they have two choices. They need to either end the filibuster, so we'd naturally have real progress, or they need to make an exception for this bill. They need to reintroduce this bill and make an exception so that you don't need the 60 to pass. So you need to call your reps, especially your Democratic senators, and you need to demand that, that Schumer brings this bill back to the Senate and make a filibuster exception and then vote on it again. And if he refuses, he needs to step down because this, this needs to pass. After you've done that, you need to find your local abortion clinics and donate to them. Uh, last time we talked about defending bodily autonomy and abortions, I failed to uplift the dis disabled community. Just as we need to support people of color and LGBTQ people and women uh, seeking abortions, we also need to support disabled community. We can do that by uplifting the voices of disabled activists and their community, such as Alice Wan. Alice has a series of informative threads about the intersection of abortion rights and disabled rights, and I'll include a link to some of them. You can also donate to disabled organizations fighting for abortion rights, such as We Testify. This is an organization led by the disabled community to fight for abortion rights. Finally, I know a lot is going on, but we can't forget Ukraine. They're still resist resisting the Russian invasion, and they still need our help. Uh, we have a page on our website that lists all the places you can donate to, but some of the organizations we recommend are Voices of Children, LGBT Association Liga, Combat Alive, and the Human Rights Fund for Ukrainian Roma. And now, after all of that, it's finally time to talk about Firenze and the Basmachi. It's February 1920 in Turkestan. Russian General Mikhail Firenze and the Red Army have arrived and are asserting communist control and re restoring order in the region. Last episode, we discussed how Florenza neutralized the Musburo, the Muslim-led organization that barely held the region together before the Red Army's arrival, and how he overthrew both the Kievan and Bukharan Omirs. While Florenza was doing all of that, so this was happening at the same time, he also launched a campaign against the various Basmachi groups in the Ferdana and Bukhara region, determined to clear Turkestan of all enemies so the Bolsheviks could spread communism throughout the region and potentially into the rest of Asia. Remember, right now at this point, the communists, they've lost faith in the West. The West is not going to fall to communism. So they're going to spread to the East, to Asia and the other colonized peoples. And they believe that Central Asia is the key to that strategy. Part 1. The Red Army's Military Campaign Against the Basmachi. Part 1a. The Basmachi as of 1920. The Basmachi operated in the Fergana Valley, the Lokai region south of Dushanbe, Bukhara, and the Turkmen steppe around Kiva. 
Their most frequent targets were the Red Army outposts and trains. The Basmachi of the Ferdana favored hit-and-run tactics, while Kirkman groups preferred larger actions and ambushes. The Basmachi enjoyed local quote-unquote support, as well as alliances with Russian settler groups who were anti-Bolsheviks. One example of this is the Basmachi leader Madamin Bey and the Russian general Konstantin Monstrov, who uh, joined together to fight the Bolsheviks, and we talked about them in episode 39. By 1920, the Russians were reporting 12 separate Basmachi groups with a total of 5,560 fighters. However, these fighters were poorly equipped, carrying whatever weapons they could take from the dead. They fought mostly with vintage weapons, including the Burdan rifles of the Russo-Turkish War from 1877 to 78, and a handful of antique artillery pieces. The Russians were convinced that the Basmachi were being armed by the British, but like their theories regarding a Bukharan-British conspiracy to take over Central Asia, there is little evidence that this is true. It is also doubtful that either Bukhara or Afghanistan provided much material support to the Basmachi, even if it was understood that they had the two Omir's tactic support. And later, Afghanistan is going to serve as a safe haven for the Basmachi, but it was more of a game of, I'm if I'm the Afghan Omir, I'm going to placate the Russians because I just defeated the British and I really don't want to like get into a war with the Russians or invite the British back into my territory because I appear to be weak because I am fighting the Russians. Um, or God forbid, I don't want a British-Russian united front where they attack me. But I also want to support um, anyone that's going to disrupt colonial aspirations in the region because I do want my front secured. So Afghanistan is kind of a wishy-washy partner for the Basmachi. The emir of Afghanistan was not providing support to the level that the Russians were thinking. And neither was the Bukharan emir. He didn't really have that capability. And the British played a weird game where I think they probably promised more than they delivered, which is what they usually do. Despite the efforts of the leaders like Madaman, the Basmachi did not coordinate their attacks well and were easily routed by disciplined Russian forces when they fought head-to-head, which kind of makes sense. So the Basmachi relied on hit-and-run tactics instead, exploiting their knowledge of the terrain and local peoples, their superior mobility, and their smaller numbers to undermine Russian control. For their part, the Russians found the Basmachi tactics unsettling. One Russian military observer writing, quote, Without anything distinguishing them on the outside, the Basmachi, clothed in the same way as the peasant population, they were all around our units, not hesitating to infiltrate an unrecognizable and elusive they devoted themselves to espionage that has no equal, whose network extends from the Afghan frontier to Kashkent. And this quote is from Robert F. Fahman's book, Russian-Soviet Unconventional Wars in the Caucasus, Central Asia, and Afghanistan. Reflecting on what this war required from the Russian forces, one Russian officer wrote, The roadless mountains and deserts of the Central Asian theaters and the backwards and disorganized enemy in Turkestan proved that the old principle, the training of a steady, fast, and calm individual soldier, has not outlived its usefulness. A quote is also from Dr. Bauman's book. And war analyst V. Lavrenev wrote that any commander would, quote, be entirely unprepared here, the mountainous zones of Central Asia, and in most instances will begin with a series of blunders. quote is also from Dr. Bauman's book. Given the lack of a, mili- of a strong military presence in Turkestan, the Basmachi were at the peak of their power in 1920. They had free range in the Ferdana and around the fields of Kiva and Bukhara. The Bolsheviks and the Musboro could barely handle the famine and their own rebellious Russian and indigenous subjects, let alone a large guerrilla movement. 
Trying to solve his Bukharan-shaped problem, Frenza actually helped the Basmachi cause by overthrowing the Bukharan Amir. When the Bukharan Amir retreated to Afghanistan, he created a cause the indigenous peoples could rally around. The Basmachi also served as a safe haven for those who didn't want to be conscripted or wanted to escape the reach of the Bolsheviks. So Frenza attacks the Bukharan Amir because he thinks the Bukharan Amir is supporting the Basmachi and he's just a pain in the ass and he's in the way of Russian dominance in the region. The Bukharan Amir, like I said, not really be able to provide a lot of support to the Basmachi except for like spiritual support and maybe giving them a place to hide. When he falls, there is a swell in the Basmachi numbers because a lot of people who supported the Amir are now in danger. Even just the regular civilians of the Bukhara They've heard about the Red Army. They've seen what's happened in Turkestan. They probably don't have a lot of faith in Russian control at this point. So they're also fleeing to the Basmachi because they just don't want to fall under communist control. Some of them probably do believe in a strong Islamic-esque state. Um, They want to go back to the days of the Amir, so they join the Basmachi. So Ferenza solved one problem, but kind of created himself another problem. By the summer of 1920, the Basmachi's ranks are said to have swelled to 30,000 men, and they were attracting supporters such as Zeki Valadov, a Bashkir nationalist who was the former president of the short-lived Bashkir Autonomous Republic, and he actually wrote about his experiences with the Basmachi. And whether for good or bad, um, Enver Pasha in 1921. And for those who don't know, Enver Pasha was one of the leaders in the Ottoman Empire during World War I, and I have thoughts about him that we will get into later. Part 1b, the Red Army in 1920. When Frenzo wasn't attacking Kiva in February and Bukhara in August, he focused on building an army that could not only defeat the Basmachi but establish communist power in the region. Frenzo wrote to Lenin in March 1920 complaining about the condition of the soldiers who were to make up the units of the newly created Turkestan Front. He wrote that the red units were numerically weak, had no uniforms, or in some cases, shoes, and with one quarter using Verdun rifles and the other quarter using English weapons sent to Russia during the World War. He had one unit consisting of 4,500 infantrymen and 700 cavalrymen holding the front from Termez on the Afghan border to Kravnovsky in what is modern-day Turkmenistan. He had a mixture of international regiments comprising of foreign prisoners taken during the World War, territorial Red Guards, and Muslim volunteers he either brought with him from the steppe or or had organized in Tashkent. Frenza eventually created a Turkestan front that consisted of two entire armies, the 4th and the 1st, and elements of a third. The 4th army consisted of three rifle divisions, equipped with 203 machine guns, and a reserve of 21,650 men total. The 1st Army consisted of three rifle divisions and a a Tatar brigade for a total of 31,129 soldiers, 515 machine guns, and 99 field guns. Frenza borrowed elements of the 11th Army in Astrakhan, which gave him an additional 17,000 men on paper, and he also relied on members of the Cheka, which is the precursor to the KGB. Part 3C, Indigenous Volunteers in the Red Army. A note on the Indigenous Volunteers. If we think about our episode on the Alash Orda and the White Army, we'll remember that the Alash Orda organized several different cavalry and infantry units. They first fought with the Whites, and then were subsumed by the Red Army. By the end of 1919, there were at least five Kazakh units, including the 1st Siberian Kazakh Volunteer Cavalry Regiment, which served in the Altai province until 1922. 
Risk to law of 1919 managed to convince Madame and Bay to temporarily side with the Bolsheviks, securing a major propaganda victory for the Red Army. The Bolsheviks worked hard to encourage the indigenous peoples to join their fellow Muslims in protecting their lands from all enemies, i.e. Russian settlers who resisted the Bolsheviks and the Basmachi who preyed both on the population as well as they protected them. In 1919, a Muslim section was established within the political department of the Revolutionary Military Council of the Turkestan Republic, and they organized a series of lectures highlighting Muslim soldiers in the Red Army, organized agitation trains known as quote-unquote Red East and quote Rosa Luxemburg, and pushed the benefits of communism and joining the Red Army via theater and literary publishing clubs. The Bolsheviks organized the indigenous volunteers based on ethnicity, foreshadowing their approach towards the creation of the future Central Asian states we know today. It also seemed to be an attempt to kill any idea of a Turkic Republic or a connection to a greater Turkestan, which Rich Twilov had been a big proponent of, as had actually Abdullah Fitrat, Chopin, and uh, Kodiri. Um, so, you know, big, big members of the writing community in Central Asia at the time. The Russians feared that anything Turkic could be used to support a pan-Turkic movement favored by the Turks in the former Ottoman Empire and by some members of the Basmachi. Basically, they were trying to kill any sense of a greater unity with non-communist entities by fo- focusing on a local ethnic identity that could then be crushed later to be, repla- to be replaced by a class identity. Ferenza had no problem working with former Basmachi who wanted to join the Red Army. In fact, the Kazakh Red Cavalry Brigade consisted of 400 people, many of whom served with Madame and Bey. He even let a former Basmachi field commander command the Kyrzyk, the Kyrzyk Cavalry Red Regiment. Ferenza was able to recruit enough Muslim volunteers by May 1920 that he felt comfortable issuing an announcement that, quote, the workers of the local national population aged between 19 and 35 were subject to conscription to the Red Army. Quote is from National Units of the Red Army in the Steppe Region and Turkestan during the Civil War by Yu Linsenko. It called upon non-Russian citizens from Siberia, Turkestan, and other outskirts for military service. In Kashkent, the first conscription took place in June, but they had a halt uh, recruitment efforts in Samarechi and the Bukharan Republic because of resistance. One of the biggest challenges facing the indigenous volunteers was the language barrier. The indigenous peoples didn't know Russian and requested that the Russians learn their various languages to ease communication. Even when the Russians could send translators to recruitment stations, they, la- they faced a lack of qualified people and money to train anyone from either language. Frenza complained that he had to refuse many Kyrgyz willing to fight because of lack of weapons and uniforms. He wrote, quote, The formed military units on their horses in Kyrgyz common clothes and providing for themselves were armed with what they got mainly from the whites and with various weapons, including the Burdan rifles. Quote is from Lysenko's article. Frenza also faced a lack of skilled commanders. Through enormous effort, the Bolsheviks were able to create several military courses that covered subjects such as infantry, artillery, cavalry, military topography, and other courses. So despite all the odds and everything working against them, Ferenza was able to recruit several units of indigenous peoples and integrated them into the forming Turkestan front. And this is important because I think a lot of people have this perspective that if you're talking about the Russian army, they're all Russian. And if you're talking about the Russian army marching into Central Asia, it's a primary Russian 
endeavor and it's just the Russians pushing down on the indigenous, indigenous peoples. But as we can see, Russian army is a bit misleading because it includes peoples from Central Asia. So you've got the Uzbeks, you've got the Kyrgyz, you've got the Kazets, you've got the Tatars. And this effort to defeat the Basmanchi and this effort to restore order and this effort to create a system of government that's not reliant on an Amir, that's not reliant on ways of the past, was a shared goal in the region at this time. The problem becomes when the Bolsheviks bring in this this expectation that it's going to be a communist form of government, while combined with their natural xenophobia and their natural racism. And so that's kind of the weird tension you get when you talk about Russia and Central Asia. There are indigenous peoples who are willing to work with the Russians, and there are Russians who are willing to work with indigenous peoples, but it's never an equal footing. And even though you do have indigenous peoples who are taking the same risk as Russian soldiers, it's not seen as the same. And Ferenza's efforts to recruit soldiers is as much about preventing them from joining the Basmachi, as well as it is him needing bodies to like throw on the front line. So it's just I just want to highlight this tension because they, there is a there is a argument that is made that the Soviets weren't racists, right? And when they went into Central Asia, they're share they're sharing this utopian version of communism with these people, and it's that's not true. Even when it seems like they are at first glance. There's a lot that's going on underneath that really needs to be dug into by other scholars um, to kind of pull out all of those contradictions and tensions that are occurring in this region. Part 1D, Ferenza's tactics against the Basmachi. First, Ferenza had to come to terms with the fact that mountain warfare is the worst and that he needed to have soldiers and officers who knew how to secure their flanks and rears, deploy patrols effectively, and give the officers enough initiative to effectively deploy their superior firepower. Ferenza translated this into a strategy that aimed at isolating and destroying Basmachi groups, or failing that, cut them off from their sanctuaries all over the mountains, including Afghanistan. Because like I said, Afghanistan's not really providing a lot of material support, but it is a safe haven. Ferenza did this in three different ways. First, he created a flexible, mobile unit of light, irregular cavalry known as the Flying Detachments. These detachments were the main weapons used against the Basmachi. They could maintain communications amongst the different garrisons and could chase the Basmachi back to their bases and destroy them there. They never stayed in one place for long on principle and could range from platoon size to a division, so roughly 200 to 2,000 men. The detachments could fight their own skirmishes, but were also used, used to support other larger operations. Even though these units were highly mobile and they could travel in a lot of places where regular infantry couldn't, Ferenza forbade them from spreading their forces too thin. He believed that the only way to defeat the Basmachi was to do it in a concentrated force that could pursue these units and then destroy them piecemeal. If you spread yourself too thin, you're just opening yourself up to raids and ambushes and hit-and-run tactics. A spin-off of the Flying Detachment was the Raiding Detachment. These detachments were more partisan in nature and focused on reconnaissance and harassing the Basmachi whenever they could. So they would be the people who would find the Basmachi base, probably attack them a little bit, and then come back, and then the flying detachments would come in and finish the job. Zedin Frenza had to solve the problem of supplies. At first, soldiers feared traveling too far from the railroads and their sources of food and clothing, giving the advantage to the Basmachi. A combined effort of clearing the territory of Basmachi by the flying detachments Meticulous care and planning when it came to resupplying the soldiers allowed the Red Army to push ever more and more into Basmachi territory. 
When the army reported issues moving heavy artillery pieces up the mountain, Threnza made them rely on portable mountain guns. These guns were used mostly to provide covering fire to support the advancing infantry and cavalry as they chased after the fleeing Basmachi. Third, Threnza relied on modern technology to transport soldiers, supply them, and support them. Steam locomotives were the pack mules of Threnza's efforts, providing the soldiers of everything they needed to survive the mountains. To protect the precious railroads, Frenza armed the trains with their own units of soldiers and firing platforms. Like the RAF in Iraq, Frenza would use airplanes in his war against the Basmachi. These planes performed reconnaissance and occasionally bombed Basmachi positions. These bombings had a far more psychological effect than material. Finally, he used naval ships to protect the Aral Sea and the Amu River. His naval forces consisted of nine streamers, two vessels powered by internal combustion, and a cutter. Part 2. Political Campaign Against the Basmachi. How to Solve a Problem Like Turkestan. While Ferenza was creating an effective military apparatus, he knew he couldn't defeat the Basmachi through militant means alone. He had to also undermine their support amongst the people. To do that, he had to resolve the many problems facing Turkestan. When Frenza arrived in February 1920, he identified three political and military threats to Bolshevik power, the Mosporo, the Emirs, and the Basmachi. But he also inherited a region wrapped with ethnic violence, famine, and complete disintegration of any central authority. As we discussed in our last episode, a combination of pragmatism, faith in the communist order, and racism slash xenophobia led Frenza to overthrow the existing government, represented by the Mosporo and the Turkestan Communist Party, the TPT, and elect his own trusted members to the government. As we've noted, many of these people were indigenous peoples who either belonged to the nascent Communist Party or hadn't annoyed Frenza yet. And while Tuar Riskulov was initially sent away, he would return to Turkestan and serve on its governing body before being executed by Stalin for being a traitor and a nationalist. But it would be going too far to say this was a progressive policy or somehow the Bolsheviks weren't racist. This was a combination of pragmatism and necessity. Once Renzo established his version of a communist government in the region, how did he plan to solve the many problems facing Turkestan? Part 2a. Famine is bad. Renzo's first solution was to invade Kiva. Because that's what you do, I guess, when you march into a region that's faced with famine, you attack its neighbor. You can learn more about that invasion in the last episode. But invading a neighboring emirate wasn't going to solve any of Turkestan's real problems, such as famine and infrastructural collapse. According to the scholar Marco Butino, the Russian settlers had lost 28% of their cultivated land by 1920. The indigenous population lost so much more. The settled indigenous population lost 39%, and the nomadic peoples lost 45% of their cultivated land. In terms of livestock, the Russians lost a significant percentage, but it was absolutely catastrophic for the indigenous peoples. The settled indigenous peoples lost 48% of their livestock, and the nomadic peoples lost 63% by 1920. As we discussed in our episode of Tuar Ristulov, famine was a common specter amongst the indigenous peoples of Central Asia, especially the nomadic Kazakhs and Kyrgyz being driven south because of the Russian civil war. These peoples were reliant on either a government that could not provide for them, or worse, were currently recognitioning, requisitioning desperately needed food from them and then failing to properly distribute the food, or being forced to find support elsewhere, i.e. by joining common cause with the marauding Basmachi or trying to cross into the neighboring countries such as, such as Afghanistan, Xinjiang, and China. 
According to Butino, Turkestan had a population of roughly 7 million people in 1916, and that's including um, the Russians and the indigenous peoples. By 1920, the population dropped to 5 million, meaning 2 million people were lost in four years due to famine, forced migration, and war. Interestingly, the Russian population saw the biggest drop in its urban areas. By 1920, half of the Russians who lived in cities were gone, but their rural presence increased by 14%. Butino suggests the drop to be explained via forced conscription and migration as well as death. The indigenous population, no surprise, suffered the most. While Butino admits that the census he used to gather his information needs to be taken with a grain of salt because the methods the Russians used to gather information about the indigenous population weren't the greatest, and then between 1916 and 1920, no one's taking a census of the indigenous population. Um, but he estimates that he estimates that in total, the indigenous population lost more than a million and a half people between 1917 and 1920, with a third of those missing belonging to the nomadic population. So it's a huge, huge dent in how many indigenous peoples were living in Central Asia at the time. While all this is horrifying, we also have to consider the infrastructural damage. Entire irrigation networks, which many cities such as Bukhara relied on for water, were in ruin. Whole districts were abandoned, and the amount of migration is almost impossible to imagine. The borders of Afghanistan, Persia, and China were porous, straining those countries' systems as as mass groups of refugees fled the Basmachi, the Russian settlers, and the Russian Civil War. Part 2b, The Russian Response The Turkomissar responded first by creating provision brigades. These brigades were meant to gather food from the country, convince farmers that things were safe and that they could resume planting, ensure loyalty of local leaders, and agitate as needed. We've talked a lot about how this was a horrible idea in our episode on Ristulov, and they were disbanded by 1922. Instead, a collection of locally organized Soviets and unions cropped up and worked together to survive, creating black markets. Quote-unquote speculation and trade occurred quite frequently, despite the communist efforts to establish a state-controlled process of food collection and redistribution. The self-organized sources of administration cropped up because the central administration in Kashkent couldn't reach beyond the borders of its own city. It started with landless and low-income peoples coming together to keep villages afloat. These unions grew into a parallel administrative structure that supported the developing local Soviets and helped reach out to the people. The administrative center in Kashkent would use these unions to establish their hold over the, over the rural regions and spread the principles of communism until their forced dissolution in 1927. The Bolsheviks also tried to build support within the women of, Ka- of Turkestan, they created a party specifically for women and attracted women escaping abusive relationships, low income, and displacement. These women were employed through labor cooperatives and gained political rights they had never experienced before. The Bolsheviks would later create the, Tom- the Komsomol, an organization for the youth of the region, which would produce many future leaders of communist Central Asia. To combat the influence of the market on foodstuffs and everyday needs, the Bolsheviks created labor and consumer cooperatives, offering credit to struggling peoples to help them make ends meet. While they offered aid to those in need, they also laid the foundation for ostracizing and later eliminating the, mer- the people of means, such as the Baz and the Kulaks of Turkestan. But, but Florenza knew this wasn't enough, so he created party schools in Evi Oblast to bring the benefits of communism to the people. He cracked down on uh, abuses the army per- perpetrated 
against the indigenous people, even disarming and disbanding the Soviet 4th regiments for crimes against the Muslim population. He also pressured for land and water reform. Frenza had the awkward job of maintaining communism's anti-religious stance while neutralizing Islam as a source of organization and resistance. He knew being completely anti-Islam would only drive people into the arms of the Basmachi, so he allowed the ulama to maintain their courts and schools, but also provided secular schools and economic opportunities. He provided tax assistance for peasants in modern-day Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, delivery of seed to farmers, extension of offers of amnesty to the Basmachi, and the restoration of Muslim schools and property. While these measures alone weren't enough to completely stop the Basmachi, they went a long way to stemming the stream of people joining their ranks. Ferenza would leave Turkestan in 1920, but he left behind a political and military structure that would transform Turkestan from a collection of collapsing, failing political entities into a not-anti-communist region. They're not quite pro-communist, but they're not anti-communist, which is a win in Ferenza's mind. The Basmachi, despite being pushed back by the Russian forces, were not yet defeated. In fact, they were about to receive help, an unlikely ally, traveling all the way from the former Ottoman Empire. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can listen to my full catalog on Spotify, iTunes, and, our, and my website, www.sanswarroom.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please join our Patreon to support uh, my research and future projects. Until next time, wash your hands, practice social distancing, and stay safe.